This is episode number 140 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency and the post-presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual One Pod. Well, we're coming at you a, a day later than normal due to a couple of reasons. First and foremost among them is the impeachment schedule. I wanted the, to let the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, uh, get uh, at least a little bit of traction and uh, have a little bit of it behind us so that I could evaluate where we are and where we're going on that. That will be the focus of the first half of this episode of the podcast. The second half of the podcast is going to be a little bit different. We're going to do an interview uh, that I'm really looking forward to with Dr. Naomi Wolf. She's a very prominent liberal author who has taken a, a very contrarian stance on the reaction to the pandemic. So I want to uh, do that interview in our last couple of episodes because it looks like this will be our next to last episode of the Individual One podcast, our schedule for next week. Now, I anticipate that the impeachment trial will be over early next week, almost certainly with a, an acquittal of Donald Trump. Uh, because of personal scheduling, we will be doing the next episode on Friday of next week, which will probably, as I said, be the last episode of the Individual One podcast. So please Plan your schedules accordingly. <laughs> as far as the impeachment trial uh, so far, uh, there basically have been two impeachment trials. The, the first one is about whether or not the trial itself is constitutional. And the second is whether or not Donald Trump was guilty of inciting an insurrection. And I have to say, as someone who has come to despise and distrust all politicians, but especially Democrats uh, post-pandemic, I have been pleasantly surprised and mildly impressed with how the House impeachment managers have done their job. They have hit on all of the most significant points, and they did so right off the bat. In fact, when it came to the first issue, whether or not the trial itself is constitutional, I was very happy that Jamie Raskin, who led the charge for the impeachment managers on the Democratic side, was very quick to make the point that if it is somehow unconstitutional to put a president on trial after they have left office, they were impeached while in office, but they cannot be put on trial after they've left office because somehow that would be unconstitutional, that this would create what he called the January loophole. Now, I actually think he was being uh, too, quote-unquote, conservative in that assessment. I, I, I think it's far more than a January loophole or exception. I think it's at least a December-January exception, because if you think about it, uh, if this had happened in December, there still would not have been enough time, especially with the holidays and what have you, for the House to do an impeachment and the Senate trial to at least begin and certainly not end before Trump had left office. So that's an inherent absurdity right there that you you're going to say, 
all right, in the last two months at least of a president's term, they can do anything they want and there will not be any accountability with regard to impeachment. Correct. That, that's absurd. It's, it's, it's just it's just flat out ridiculous. But that is the Republican position which is a very liberal position, by the way, in terms of interpreting the Constitution. There is absolutely no way that the Founding Fathers set this system up of impeachment thinking, you know what, let's just let it ride in the last portion of a president's term in office, because after all, there's no danger there. Are you kidding? That's the most dangerous portion of a president's Uh, term in office, especially if your greatest concern is having a dictator or a tyrant in office. And Donald Trump proved that in spades, is that once they have lost, they have nothing to lose, and they might be willing to do anything and everything they can to hang on to power as if they were a king or a dictator or a tyrant. And if they were doing that, if Donald Trump's intentions were to do that, what exactly would he have done differently after the election last November? I would submit to you it would be almost nothing different, almost nothing different. Now, some people, including my wife, they, they have this view of, well, you know, Trump is such a dumbass. Uh, how do you take him seriously? How do, how do you really take him seriously that this was truly an insurrection, that this was an attempt to hold on to power? Uh, well, wasn't he really just being a, a, a jackass like he normally is? And, uh, you know, and this is not something to be taken seriously. Well, that is an incredibly dangerous view. As I told her, I said, so your argument is that you elected such a dumbass uh, who shouldn't be taken seriously as president that therefore he cannot be held accountable for anything. And even she had to acknowledge, okay, that that's probably not a real good way to look at it. But a lot of people do look at it that way. Trump has always throughout his presidency, he has benefited from getting to have it both ways, that he is being taken seriously as the president of the United States, yet as a person, well, he's Donald Trump. You can't really take anything he says or does all that seriously. Well, a lot of people do, particularly in his cult. I love the poorly educated. And those people obviously took what he's did and said after the election with regard to, you know, stop the steal and fight like hell. They took it very seriously. We saw the ramifications of that on January 6th in the alleged insurrection against the Capitol. It's not alleged. It obviously was an attack on the Capitol, and it stopped the counting of the votes in the Electoral College. So this was a very unique set of circumstances. And so the idea that somehow Republicans are now of the position that, you know what, uh, the Founding Fathers would have uh, had no problem with the idea that a president could do whatever they want in the last couple of months in office, it's just absurd. You cannot be serious! But that's now the Republican position. The Republican position is now completely contrary to what is obviously the philosophy of the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers' philosophy was we are setting up our entire system. Our entire system is intended to prevent a tyrant or a king, because that's what they rebelled against. They fought a revolution against that. So that's what the basis of the entire system was. And to say somehow, well, we just left this loophole in there it is absurd. It's ridiculous. And by the way, it's not just with regard to uh, someone leaving office. Think about if this precedent stands. Think about if this president's precedent stands uh, on, on the Republican side. And, and now Trump is, is acquitted based upon this idea, or if, if, God forbid, they had somehow had enough votes to 
to not even have the, the trial itself be constitutional. If that was the new standard, then a president could do anything they wanted as president. And by the way, they're protected in many cases from criminal liability for anything they do as president. All they would have to do is resign from office and they would then therefore be untouchable. That's, that's insanity. That's insanity. And so the Democrats are absolutely right. It pains me to say that, but they are absolutely right that this is perfectly constitutional. There's precedent for it, and it makes complete sense that you would be able to do that. So the Democrats ended up winning that argument. They, they won it uh, by a majority. That's all they needed. They ended up getting six Republican votes, which is really pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. We're better than that. No, we are not. Only six Republicans, the five that we knew were going to vote that way, and one more, Bill Cassidy, the senator from Louisiana. So there was one mind that was changed, even though the House managers put on a fantastic presentation that was fact and logic based and had all of the evidence on their side. Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers literally look pathetic. Correct. They were absurd. It was it was silly. It was embarrassing. There were all sorts of reports that Trump himself uh, were furious. I always am very skeptical of those because how the hell does CNN have enough access to people inside the Team Trump to know that uh, Donald Trump was screaming and yelling and pissed off about his lawyers? Uh, that always feels to me like a convenient narrative creation. But the reality is Trump had a lot of reason to be upset because his lawyers sucked. And even Republicans admitted that. And Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, the one Republican senator, one, one out of 45, 45 would already been a sec, essentially on the record saying that this is unconstitutional and they were against the process. Only one of those 45 changed his mind and was an actual objective juror as they pledged in their sacred oath to do. Only Bill Cassidy did that. And here uh, was Cassidy after day one when uh, he was the only vote to really change in favor of the constitutionality of this second impeachment trial, explaining to a reporter who asked him why uh, he voted the way he did. And he did so uh, in very, very clear terms. So, Senator, you were the, you were the one Republican who changed uh, votes to a yes. What happened? What changed your mind? I said I'd be an impartial juror. Anyone listening to those arguments, the House managers were focused. They were organized. They relied upon both precedent, the Constitution, and legal scholars. They made a compelling argument. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. Now, if I'm an impartial juror, and one side's doing a great job, and the other side's doing a terrible job on the issue at hand, as an impartial juror, I'm going to vote for the side that did the good job. Good for Bill Cassidy. So at least there's one. At least there's one of those 45 that has a conscience and a soul and cares about America and cares about precedent and cares about the truth and fulfilling their oath. Bill Cassidy did that. That made six. Now, I've talked a lot about the importance of the number three. 
I told you that in the first impeachment trial, there was no chance of getting any momentum towards a conviction because you were never going to get three prominent Republicans on board. Mitt Romney was the only one that had the courage of his convictions, and I predicted he would be the only one that would have the courage of his convictions uh, to vote uh, to convict uh, the, the first time around. But you need three big names. Now, you don't have three huge names, but now you have six in this particular circumstance, six Republicans who have voted to clearly say, you know what, this is constitutional. In a rational world, there's no way to spin that for the other 44. When you have six that are voting against self-interest, because those six, now a couple of them are retiring, but the, uh, at least one uh, is for sure retiring. Uh, when those six, when those six are going to suffer consequences, and all six will, They will all suffer personal consequences for voting simply on the constitutionality issue. So when you have six Senate Republicans willing to vote against self-interest, that in a rational world means they're right. One could be a fluke. It wasn't in the first impeachment trial. Mitt Romney was correct. But one could be a fluke. You know, it could be, you know, Trump derangement syndrome or someone's just trying to be a contrarian or someone's just trying to curry favor with the liberal media. I get all that. I've seen it a million times. But when you have six in this particular circumstance, that means they're right. That means the other 44 are a bunch of fucking whores. They're a bunch of cowards. They, they know they're wrong. And of those 44, the two for, for whom I have the most disdain are Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. Correct. Lindsey Graham, who I've talked about extensively previously, I really liked him during the Clinton impeachment. He's a complete hypocrite. He was in the first impeachment trial of Trump, now even worse in the second one, because on the, the, the day or the day after the insurrection, he, he dramatically declared on the floor of the Senate that he was done. He was done defending Trump. And ever since then, he's done nothing but suck Trump's cock. That's all he's done. It's pathetic, and he's doing it, going way out of, his, out of his way to do it. He has no need to do it. He just got reelected. He's old as it is, so he's in the Senate for another six years. He might not even run for reelection. In a rational world, he would retire at the end of those six years. But that's how pathetic this is. That's how deep the cult is. That's how beholden these people still are to a former president who just lost who is going to be a, an, an anchor around the neck of the Republican Party for at least the next four years, if not longer than that, because they're not going to take this golden opportunity to prevent him from ever being able to run for office again. And so Lindsey Graham was one of the 44, as was Mitch McConnell. Now, I've never trusted Mitch McConnell. I've had my own experiences with him. He's a scoundrel. Uh, he's cutthroat. He's a really good chess player. Uh, I, I don't know. He doesn't really believe anything other than his own self-interest and the, and the self-interest of the party, other than maybe conservative judges. And here's a guy who also very publicly made a show of saying that uh, this was wrong. Uh, he even certainly implied that the impeachment was more than valid. Uh, he said that uh, impeachment uh, was a matter of conscience. And yet he voted that this was unconstitutional. Now, McConnell, I have a small caveat to, because I think it is still, and maybe this is me being naive, I think there is still a small chance that McConnell ends up voting to convict. That I think in McConnell's mind, 
that he was protecting his caucus uh, on the constitutional vote. And even though it sounds absurd, it would seem, seem uh, insane logically to to vote that a trial was unconstitutional and then vote to convict within it. I actually see a path where McConnell might do that now. That doesn't mean that he would bring any significant number of votes with him. But I I am still curious as to what McConnell's going to do when it comes to conviction or acquittal. But he was an absolute coward and wrong to vote uh, with the 44 who said that this was not constitutional. So they decided that this trial was, in fact, constitutional. And then yesterday they started with the actual trial on the impeachment uh, uh, charge, which was inciting an insurrection. Now, one of the, the many, many problems with the Trump defense on this and, the, and the, the defense of Trump supporters on his behalf is this idea that somehow it's just the January 6th speech that is at issue here, that it was just the words that Trump used just before the attack on the Capitol that were the cause of the insurrection and the attack. And that is just flat out wrong. That it is it's an absurdity. That that is taking things completely out of context. And one of the things that the House impeachment managers have done a really good job of is connecting the dots and putting all of this in their proper context, because you can't just do this as a snapshot. This, frankly, goes way beyond even the aftermath of the election. It intensified after the election. Heck, it actually goes beyond this entire election cycle. This goes back to 2016 when Trump was talking about the election being rigged against him, even though he somehow ended up winning that election that was rigged against him. But he has been planting the seeds with his cult of supporters on this issue for years, years and years. These things don't happen instantly. To get someone to risk their personal liberty and freedom and maybe even their lives, and in one case it did cost a woman her life, to, to, to have people risk all that by attacking the capital of the United States. You can't do that, even if you're a cult leader, in one single speech. That takes years and at least many, many, many seeds being planted in their brains. And we've talked forever about the cult-like behavior of Trump followers. Well, Trump has been programming these people for an exceedingly long period of time. And yes, it absolutely accelerated after the election. The whole stop the steal lie, the fight like hell admission, which he used on uh, January the 6th. Now, the Trump people, and this really bugs me, the Trump people will say, but John, uh, the House managers, they took that out of context because they left out they, at least for one portion of their presentation, they left out where Trump also urged his supporters to protest peacefully. Trump did say that. Correct. He did say that. He said protest peacefully. I'm sorry, that does not get you off the hook when you say that one time uh, in the context of everything else that has been happening. When you tell people that you're about to lose your country, that your election was stolen, that, that I won in a landslide. And yet you have to go and fight like hell on my behalf and that Mike Pence has the last opportunity to save America. When you say all that, but, oh, by the way, make sure you do it peacefully. That does not change the equation. And here's the analogy I use 
and I've used this before with Trump, to prove how ridiculous that concept is. Trump is like a mob boss. This is how he has always operated. This is his M.O. And if you have a mob boss that suspects that they're being wiretapped and they're telling their thug what they ought to be doing, Right. And they're and they're they're outlining vaguely all sorts of nefarious and illegal acts. But they say one time during the tape, make sure you don't do anything illegal. Right. That does not get them off the hook. That would be ridiculous. That would be absurd. It would be insane. No one would buy that defense. You don't get to do that. You don't wipe everything clean by. Oh, by the way, I'm going to throw this in there for plausible deniability. All right. But that's classic Trump. This is his M.O. And as far as this larger context issue, I thought the Democrats did a really good job of that. Many of them made this exact point. In fact, that might be the number one theme of the entire House manager's presentation, which is that you have to look at all of this in context. You have to look at the timeline. You have to look at his M.O. You have to realize how long this was in the making. And one of the people who did that the best, which I, and I'm going to play a clip from him in a second for a couple of reasons, is Democrat Eric Swalwell. Now, the reason why I'm going to play this clip is, one, I think it's a good clip and it, it kind of encapsulates this issue. But also the way that Republicans reacted here because of who Swalwell is. Now, you might re- recognize him. He actually uh, played a prominent role in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. I thought he did a pretty decent job. But... After that first impeachment and before the second impeachment, he got involved in a scandal of his own because apparently he had an affair with a Chinese spy. Now, that's relevant to who he is, but it's not relevant to what he says. Now, here's what he had to say about this particular issue of the larger context. Thousands of people pouring into D.C. who won't stand for the landslide election to be stolen. It's all right there. And he tags senators to pressure you to stop this. And he warns all of us that his thousands of supporters, whom you'll see that the FBI had warned were armed and targeting the Capitol, won't stand for us certifying the results of the election. This was never about one speech. He built this mob over many months with repeated messaging until they believed that they had been robbed of their vote and they would do anything to stop the certification. He made the He made them believe that their victory was stolen and incited them so he could use them to steal the election for himself. Thousands. Well, we had a little problem with the clip there at the end, but it doesn't matter. You got the gist of it. and, And here's what ends up happening. So Swallow makes that exceedingly good point. But all Republicans say is, well, you you had, you know, an affair apparently with a Chinese spy. So you're not credible. What? It doesn't matter who it is saying it, it's what the facts are. It's what the argument is. And that is a very strong argument and one that cannot be forgotten here. But Republicans will do anything at this point to change the subject. We saw it all sorts of ways over the last couple of days and the first couple of days of the actual impeachment trial. And look, I mean, I have problems with some of the things that Democrats did, which I'll get to momentarily. But let me just throw one more analogy here. And the Democrats have used this analogy as well in some ways that I think really articulates what Trump did here. It's the arson analogy that that Trump is an arsonist here, that he spent months, if not years, drying the field for the wildfire that would come. 
he he's lit the flame or at the very least was playing with fire in a very flammable area that he created. And then he did nothing to help put the fire out when he could have. The fire was burning and he let it burn. He apparently cheered it burning. We learned that behind the scenes, he was trying to use the fact that the fire was burning to try to further delay the certification of the Electoral College votes. And apparently that effort uh, was comical. I'll get to that uh, momentarily. But if this was a trial about an arsonist, you would not have to prove that someone fully intended for the building to burn down or whatever it was if they were the ones that facilitated the, 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 the flammability of the situation. They were reckless with the, their use of fire in the circumstance, and then they did nothing to help put it out when they were in a powerful position to do so. Because remember, he's the president of the United States. These are his people. This is his cult. Correct. There's all sorts of evidence that they were there because of him, and they would have done whatever he wanted uh, when he declared it to happen. And so th- this is all exceedingly important context. And I will say that while Democrats have done a really good job, they have also committed what they always do, which is to overplay their hand. They, I, this is the number one thing I've learned in my life about Democrats. They will always, always, always overplay their hand, and they have done so in several ways during this trial. I understand why they've done it, uh, but they've still done it. One of the issues, because I'm a truth guy, that I think is, is worthy of mention is that uh, a large part of why uh, this story has so much magnitude is that we are told that at least five or maybe seven people died during the insurrection. Now, it is apparently true that up to seven people who were there are now dead. That's apparently true. But why they died is still a very open question. The only person that I am sure was killed or murdered because of what happened that day was the woman from San Diego who was killed by law enforcement on video, shot. And I still don't fully understand why she was shot. Um, what she was doing was wrong. But I can assure you that if, uh, if she was a, a black woman in an inner city, uh, you know, the left would be viewing that, that uh, shooting very, very, very differently than they do here. This has gotten almost no publicity, no outrage, because she was a Trump supporter. And so that, we know, was a killing. The others, there's been no details on, including the one law enforcement official who originally was reported, it was, you know, attacked with the fire extinguishers. That apparently is not true. That, that has taken on almost an urban legend type of mythology. There's been no charge in that law enforcement officer's death, that police officer's death. There's been very little information about it. We don't know. Now, that doesn't make it insignificant, but I do think this idea, because a lot of people now think, I believe, that protesters killed five people. By the way, of that seven, the two that got added apparently were people who committed suicide after the event. This is almost like COVID, where if you were there and you now dead, it was, a, it was an insurrection death. That, that's not the way this should work. So I do have a problem with this, this narrative that five to seven people died in the attack. Uh, we don't know that. And, and I, I don't believe that that number is, is accurate. Another thing that I think the media somewhat overplayed is this so-called chilling video 
the chilling video of Mike Pence being scurried out, uh, Mitt Romney being scurried out. Yeah, it's it's disturbing. No question, it's disturbing. Uh, this shouldn't be happening, especially at a incredibly important point in American history where we're certifying the Electoral College vote. But the video, I mean, it was it was good video. Uh, it was it was I said disturbing. It felt a little bit more like the video of a school fire drill than it did uh, something where people really felt like their lives were in imminent danger. But okay, fine. Uh, And then there's the other issue of, and I know a lot of conservatives are very upset by this element of it, the hypocrisy of the news media and the Democrats when it comes to riots uh, where Antifa or Black Lives Matter Uh, those groups are at the heart of this, that somehow those are enabled and not condemned at all when there are similarities between that and what happened at the Capitol. I get that there is a level of hypocrisy there, but let's never forget that the person urging this on was the president of the United States, that this was the capital of the United States, and that this was designed to stop the voting of the Electoral College vote. Those things make this different. So while it is a point, it is not nearly the point that conservatives try to claim that it is. And what was maybe most disturbing to me, other than the fact that Republicans clearly are in the tank for acquittal for Trump, is that yesterday there was this overwhelming amount of evidence of guilt. Overwhelming. And what were the takeaways, for instance, on Twitter? Because we're such a frivolous people. What were, the, what were the things people remembered from yesterday? That Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, called the wrong number when he was trying to get a hold of a senator. He calls Tommy Tuberville from Alabama when apparently he was trying to or actually, I guess he called Mike Lee when he thought he was trying to get a hold of Tommy Tuberville. He leaves a voicemail message that was almost comical. Mike Lee then objects because the the uh, he claims he was misquoted about the nature of the phone call uh, that Tommy Tuberville had with Donald Trump. That's all anyone cared about on Twitter. And by the way, Mike Lee was far more outraged by him being misquoted by the House impeachment managers than he was about any apparently anything else involving this whole situation. And then Andrea Mitchell of NBC makes a mistake when uh, contradicting Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, over the issue of uh, what was a quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth. That ends up trending on Twitter. So these are the things people take away. These are the takeaways from an impeachment trial of a former president of the United States. I'm sorry, folks. This is very serious. This is a very serious matter. And I get some of these things are funny, but but it doesn't feel to me as if America is engaged at all in this, mostly because there's no drama about what the outcome is going to be. But I'll tell you what the, the real drama ought to be. Republicans are about to lose their last best opportunity to get rid of this cancer called Donald Trump, an opportunity lost that they will rue forever, forever. That All they need is 17 votes to end this thing, and they're going to get six, maybe seven, by the way, exactly as I predicted, tops. And while Democrats are doing a good job, yes, they're also playing politics. They're spiking the football over their election victory. They're rubbing it in Trump's face. They're forever emblazing in the minds of Americans this narrative of Republicans as insurrectionists. I get it. I get all of it. But uh, it is disgusting to me that Republicans, a party I used to feel very strongly about being a member 
of the Republican Party, was once a delegate to the Republican National Convention, is is completely and totally embarrassing and humiliating itself on behalf of a former president who's a con man and they're taking a, a position that if liberals took it, they would rightly be condemned for it. And it's it's just sad and it's pathetic. And we'll continue to cover this in our last episode uh, of the podcast next week as by that point, the impeachment trial will almost certainly be over. Uh, before we end this episode of the podcast, however, I want to turn to the pandemic and the reaction to it. And as I predicted, the numbers uh, with regard to hospitalizations and cases and now even deaths here in the United States are significantly down. They've continued to go down over the last several weeks. This started before Joe Biden took office three weeks ago. And one of the things I've been very, very frustrated by is the lack of any liberals prominently to stand up against what I see as the overreach when it comes to the reaction to the pandemic. Well, that leads us to our interview today with uh, a very prominent uh, liberal progressive author. Uh, She is Dr. Naomi Wolf and someone who I have uh, been very impressed with, uh, especially recently when it comes to her comments on our reaction to the pandemic. Uh, And uh, she has agreed to join us now to talk about uh, this subject that is near and dear to my heart because as a conservative who was one of the few to stand up against Donald Trump, I've been wondering where are the liberals to stand up for their principles against what I see as often the tyranny uh, when it comes to the reaction to the pandemic. And she joins us now. Dr. Wolf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and please call me Naomi, but I, I appreciate it. Okay, Naomi. All right. Uh, well, Naomi, it, it's I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, so to give us some perspective on, on where you're coming from here, can you tell us your evolution of thought when it come, came to the our reaction to the pandemic? In other words, where you started on this maybe a year ago and where you are now? Um, well, I haven't really uh, moved much um, since the start of the pandemic. Now, I mean, like most people, I thoroughly believe that, you know, it was a scary uh, medical crisis that required, at, at least initially, unprecedented inter- intervention. I mean, things that people aren't familiar with, you know, require unprecedented steps as people try to figure out what it is. Um, however, even I'll never forget, um, John, I was sitting in Britain, actually, in the middle of March or right before lockdown of Italy. And I, I was just chatting with a young Italian woman who said, I can't get in to see my family. They've locked down this part of northern Italy. And I'm like, locked down? What does that even mean? And as she was describing it to me, I thought I just had this sinking feeling because I thought, oh, my God, if they're going to do that in the West, that totalitarian thing, um, the, you know, the floodgates are going to open because, I, you know, having written a book about called The End of America and give me that, another one called Give Me Liberty about about how democracies are, are forced to collapse by people who want to drive them into the ground on the left or on the right, I recognize that, you know, once you have that kind of totalitarian emergency edict of we decide who goes in and who goes out, um, you know, that is straight out of, you know, Stalin's playbook, Mao's playbook, um, Hitler's playbook, uh, and that bad things were ahead. So, you know, as we've seen over the last year, catastrophic things have happened, and now the the, the, the things that are being done to human populations in Western democracies like Canada and Britain and parts of the United States um, are, you know, if you had told me that I would see this, I, I would be 
uh, horrified and astonished, but in a weird way, I can't say I'm surprised because this is how democracy died. This is how coups take, take place. And it's interesting that you mention how this spread across the world. I've had a lot of people, when I fight back or push back against lockdowns or, or tyrannical policies in response to the pandemic, they say, well, John, most of the rest of the world, if not all the, the civilized world, is doing the same thing. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa hold on a second. We're the United States of America. Lit- literally, our brand is freedom and liberty. Uh, uh, first of all, we, we used to be different. And number two, we are still incredibly influential. The rest of the world, when they see it's happening in the United States, they go, well, there's nothing wrong with it happening here. I mean, if even the place that has right. the Statue of Liberty is doing it, then we should be doing it too. Do you see it the same way? I mean, I think I I would state it even more uh, alarmingly. Um, I mean, certainly we should be the last country on earth to accept these tyrannical violations of every one of our rights in our constitution. I mean, freedom, you know, I called my synagogue to say, when can I worship again? You know, the Supreme Court said a week and a half ago that churches can convene. There's a limit of 10 people on gathering in the absence of any scientific peer-reviewed studies saying that that is actually useful. Um, you know, more than 10 people can't gather in Massachusetts. I I wrote to the governor of Massachusetts. I, you know, I asked my, you know, Jewish Federation, and they're waiting for the CDC. They're waiting for the governor, and so the whole state is being is having their First Amendment rights to assemble violated. And you know, I think I would go further. There, a crime is being committed against us. I mean, we're we're also being detained unlawfully in our homes. Um, our businesses are being crushed. Our children are having mental health effects. Uh, imposed on them by restricting them to, you know, from playing with other children and having human community. So, yes, we should be the last place in the world for this to happen. Um, But at the same time, countries like Canada, they have uh, the equivalent of a Bill of Rights and a Declaration of Rights. Um, Britain has an unwritten constitution, but they have, you know, 600 years of, of law protecting freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. France was you know, uh, started the whole thing with the revolution, and they have rights in the European Court of Human Rights. So all these countries in the West have, you know, foundational laws that, that would not make it possible for these violations of liberty to happen. All of us should be, you know, rising up and, and saying not in our name. Uh, it's against the law everywhere it's happening in the West. It's not against the law in North Korea. You know, that is a complete totalitarian country. And lockdowns were invented by Xi Jinping in March of last year. Um, they are a communist, you know, Chinese Communist Party invention that's being exported around the world for reasons we can, you know, get into and speculate about uh, that are not strictly medical, you know, not strictly about the well-being of populations around the world. And, you know, only totalitarian countries have ever done anything like this. This is literally when people say, oh, it's a quarantine. John, it is not a quarantine. I've looked at the history of quarantines. In quarantines in the West, you keep the sick from entering your community or you keep the sick at home. That's basic public health policy, 130 years of pandemic um, planning of good public health policy is you keep everything as normal as possible and you support people who are especially vulnerable, people who are immunocompromised, people who are elderly. Never has this been done in a Western society. 
uh, you know, if you don't look at examples like the, the Warsaw Ghetto, where people were not allowed to leave their, you know, immediate area and were forced to not work. Like, that is literally the hallmark of a totalitarian society. Those are really good points. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you specifically about this is because you're a, a lifelong liberal progressive and you have a lot of street cred uh, on on that issue. You're a very prominent author and commentator. And and when this all began and uh, here in Southern California, I, I spoke at a couple of the the protests against the lockdowns. And one of the things I, I was in a very strange position, Naomi, because I'm an anti Trumper. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a philosophical libertarian conservative. And so I'm speaking at these things and I'm looking around and going, where are all the liberals from the 1960s and the 70s? Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I know that, you know, they're still alive. You know, they're, they're still kicking. Uh, these are people that would protest anything on behalf right. of their civil rights. And they're nowhere to be found at all. And I was yeah. at that moment, I was both horrified and confused and I also knew we were doomed because I yeah. knew I knew that our movement was going to be portrayed as pro-Trump. And right. as soon as that was the case, stick a fork in us. Can you give me any insight as to what the heck happened to those people from the 60s and the 70s that protested everything on behalf of civil rights? Right. Well, I mean, you're asking a really profound question, John. And first, I want to say. You know, I always want to honor people who stand up for their whatever their core ideals are and don't just go with labels or party. And so, you know, thank you for not for any particular stand, but thank you for, you know, having the courage of your convictions, because that's pretty rare these days. And, um, you know, I'm going to mirror that. You know, yes, I'm on the left, but um, I am feeling the way you are, not not to bash the left, but it's very lonely here because the only people or most of the people I hear clamoring for liberty and basic human rights are libertarians or um, conservatives and, and, and red states, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm kind of horrified and, and some of my friends and loved ones on the left are, are horrified at me because I would have thought like you that it's the left that for you know, generations has been the champions we used to believe of individual rights, human rights, um, bodily autonomy. I mean, I tweeted yesterday and got like hundreds of retweets that, you know, the tradition on the left has been my body, my choice. You know, the state has no role in invading my body and making medical decisions for me. That's between myself and my doctor. But suddenly, where is that precept when it comes to, you know, coronavirus uh, policies? invading every private aspect of our decision-making, um, you know, and, and having the state manage every detail of our lives. And so I'm very disappointed. Um, but I think, uh, you know, not, rather than bashing the left, I think there's some real insight in what happened. Uh, and it's clever. I mean, basically, the DNC, and I'm a former political consultant for Dems, so I know exactly how this works. The DNC very cleverly branded um, the pandemic as a red problem, you know, a Republican problem, and the response of freedom and openness as a diabolical Republican response to a medical crisis, and they branded, and this is terrible, and like, I'm worried sick about young people that I know and love, you know, a whole generation being kind of brainwashed about this. They branded wearing a mask, you know, in your home, in your car, you know, when science doesn't call for it, 
and, you know, staying inside forever and keeping your child from having a healthy social life or ever going back to school, you know, and doing it, having everything injected into you that anyone can ever come up with. You know, they branded all of that as um, responsible, virtuous, kind of community-oriented, good, progressive behavior. So they did it so well, and, you know, there's a lot of media outlets, frankly, colluding with this, um, many of them benefiting from millions of dollars that Bill Gates is pumping into, you know, liberal to centrist news outlets and, and straight up centrist ones like BBC, Guardian, Telegraph, um, you know, New York Times. They're getting millions of dollars in, in COVID education money from Bill Gates. So they're they're not deviating from this narrative that anyone who's saying, wait a minute, you know, you're taking my business, you're taking my freedom, you're, you're taking my child's right to an education uh, you know, they're, they're, they've, these media outlets and the DNC have successfully said that these are crazy MAGA fundamentalists that don't believe in science and just want to endanger the rest of us. So that was a neat trick, but it's left, it's left our whole country in a horrible situation, you know, left and right. And it's, and it's um, catastrophic. Because we should be fighting together for our freedom. Uh, amen to that. And let me throw a theory at you, uh, Naomi. Uh, and since this is a Trump-focused uh, uh, podcast, uh, I think this is particularly appropriate to, to discuss this. I truly believe that uh, on a subconscious, mostly, although some of this might be conscious, level, almost all of the left's reaction to this occurred because Donald Trump was president and because of their hatred towards him. And let me take that out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. Uh, I, I believe that masks in particular became a thing. Remember, this didn't happen immediately. We were told at the, at the beginning that masks don't work. Even, right. Fa- even Fauci said that. It wasn't until May or June that all of a sudden mandates started popping up mostly in almost exclusively in the most liberal areas of the country. And the reason why that happened is because the mask became a virtue signal against Trump, that it was it it was a signal of of your virtue and your opposition to Donald Trump, that you were responsible, that you were doing the right things and that Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was anti-science and even and somehow we're pro-science even though the experts told us two months ago that these things don't work and mm-hmm. that, and that's always been the science that they don't work against the virus and that uh, and, and this goes way beyond the mask but the mask is the most obvious symbol of of this phenomenon and that liberals then become invested emotionally and politically in the idea that COVID is the worst thing that's ever happened, that Trump is responsible for all this, and and then once they see that it's harming him politically in an election year, it's mm-hmm. over. It's over because they are they are now effectively, whether they want to admit it or not, they're rooting for the virus. What do you make of that no. theory? I, yeah, I, I would gently push back on that last sentence. No, no one I know is rooting for the virus. Um, but you are you are right. I mean, I agree with you that you know, as, as we were saying earlier, this virus has been highly, what is the word, uh, semiotically branded as political in, in both ways. You know, like the right the right wing sometimes you know gathers in ways that I would say are irresponsible um, because that's a political statement, and the left sometimes you know 
puts things on their faces in defiance of science, even though I'd be quite willing if science supported it, um, you know, as a political statement. So you're exactly right that people are doing things on both sides that aren't, that are like absurdly not about is there a pathogen and what should we do about it. Um, but I do want to say I don't think it's necessarily coming from organic hatred of Trump, though there was that, because if it was just that, you know, he's gone, right? So, what, you know, why keep up this this spectacle on the left? I think that, again, you well, know— Just to stop you there, Naomi, because they're, yeah. inv- they're invested now. They're, they're, yeah, but he's they're, gone. Like, what is no, no, but they're, they're invested in the and in not being wrong about how we reacted to the pandemic. Let's take oh, let's let, let's take yes. let's take schools for a second. OK, yes. uh, I, I know I, I, I and I believe you're very much in favor of opening schools. Uh, yeah. I, I am as well with two young kids, two young daughters. Um, I believe that one of the biggest obstacles to opening schools, especially in liberal areas, is that they are they are so fearful that if they open them up and nothing bad happens, that it will be proven that they should have been open a long time ago, if not never closed. And and that, that, that counterintuitively, the more damage done by a mistake makes it less likely for that mistake to be corrected because then you have to admit you screwed up and you have to take responsibility for the epic damage done to our generation of kids. Do you see where I'm going with that? I do, but I would situate that in leaders and special interests and not in parents. What what I'd like you to imagine is that parents in America right now, in blue states and red states, and even members of the same household, you know, depending on what their feed gives them, what the algorithm gives them, what news sites they look at, are getting two completely different worlds of information about how scary the world is. And so I've stopped turning on the New York Times, let alone The Guardian, because it's just fear, 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 fear. Uh, And then there's solid scientists in my feed with peer-reviewed studies showing that 80% of what other people I love are reading is not correct and things are much more manageable things are scary if you're over 75 if you're over 70 you do have to take very good care uh, but the young people you know have no risk that there's no no or very little evidence for asymptomatic spread you know and so on and so on so people are not understanding each other and so I think a lot of liberal parents are literally terrified but there are bad actors and you are right at higher levels and here's how it goes. It's not just the left. This is being done in, you know, in Britain, even worse than here, by conservative Boris Johnson and his administration. But you are right. I just had a really interesting interview with a member of the provincial parliament in Canada, Roman Bobber, uh, who was kicked out of his party for standing up against lockdowns and he's you know, unseated from the Justice Committee. Um, but he's getting a lot of support from his constituents. And he said basically what you're saying. He said, if they, you know, this was a bad idea that people are scared will come back to haunt them as a bad idea. So they're doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, because if we open up, then there are investigations, then there are lawsuits, then there's, you know, people can actually communicate with each other. I mean, I have a theory that bars and restaurants are, and churches and synagogues are the last places to reopen because when human beings communicate to each other, they find out what's really going on ah. and they're not isolated and fed mm. propaganda. But he, he basically said, you know, there's going to be such a backlash. And, you know, these are criminal acts. And so they're kind of delaying mm. the day of reckoning and trying to, you know, add 
one justification after another. Um, and I think that there's truth to that, but I do want to throw in one more wrench in, into this banner if we're going to really have an honest conversation about this, which is it's not just left and right. Something really scary is happening to to our country and to the West. Um, and this comes from very thoughtful people with whom I'm in communication, uh, many of them in the intelligence community or the world of diplomacy. And what they are worried about is that there is a war against the West, and it's a stealth war, and it's um, it's a, called asymmetric warfare, which means you don't even use combat or you know a military attack, but that under the opening presented by the pandemic, China, are, who is not our friend, and who wants to be the global dominant power by 2025, they say this in their manifestos, um, is basically funneling money to Western gatekeepers, funneling money to Western gatekeepers um, to to basically, you know, harm America and harm, uh, you know, the West. And, and sometimes when you look at these policies, like keep everyone indoors. Don't let anyone have any sunlight or vitamin D. Don't let anyone exercise. Keep our children uneducated and hopeless and, you know, self-harming and suicidal. Crush businesses, crush economies. You know, kill the middle class, kill small businesses, uh, kill property rights. You know, if you were planning how to, as military people say, you know, tenderize a target or soften a target, that's how you would do it. So there's a great deal of evidence that people like that I respect, like General uh, Spalding, who was uh, an envoy from the military to China for 10 years, um, has been writing about, and Michael Sanger, uh, you might want to look into him. And they've uh, they've compiled massive evidence that in addition to other bad actors who may be partisan, you know, and I, I totally agree that Biden and DNC exploited this pandemic as, you know, as, as is their job, basically, as political consultants, but in a way that's very cynical now and very damaging. Right. Uh, in addition to all of that, we also have an enemy, um, you know, making use of that, this, to, to weaken us and disorient us. Interesting. Of course, people I, 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 I have a lot of respect for. A couple quick points before we let you go. Um, one of the things, there's so many things about the, the liberal response to the lockdowns and, and tyrannical rule and loss of civil liberties that confused me about uh, liberals. You've already mentioned one massive hypocrisy, which is the the dichotomy between the view on abortion and, the, and then the view on, on uh, now, for instance, the vaccine or other things related to the, to the, the COVID pandemic. But, but the one that mystifies me the most, and we've already alluded to it, but I think it, it, I want to get your, your specific reaction to it. Liberals have been saying for decades this is, it's all about the children, right? Everything we do is about the children. It's about the children, about the children, about the children. Mm-hmm. What happened to it being about the children? Because I view oh. so much of, of what has happened here as overt, blatant child abuse. It's child abuse. John, you're 100% right. It's child abuse. I, I just had a, an amazing interview with Jennifer Say, who was the young gymnast long ago who <laughs> was... Um, who, who helped to blow the whistle on this horrible Larry Nasser, who had molested hundreds and hundreds of girls, it, you know, in the gymnastics um, training uh, sport. By the way, and, just, by the way, not to stop yeah. you, just in a bizarre coincidence, I just I just spoke with her uh, last week for about an hour. Well, you know, there's cosmic alignment going on there. Maybe <laughs> God is sick of this and is bringing left and right together for some common sense because she said, you know, she that she resonated to this issue of children being abused by being kept inside, isolated, 
stripped of all human community, denied an education as a survivor of child abuse. And I have to say that, you know, I, as a survivor of, you know, violence against children, also totally agree with her. So she's, what I'm really heartened to, to see is that she started a group of progressive moms, um, Moms for Liberty, whom I interviewed a few days ago on the right, have started a group of conservative moms. But they're all like, this is transpartisan. This is child abuse. That the, the, And to answer your question about where's the left hypocrisy on this, honestly, I'll be completely frank. I do not understand what's happening to my own people right now. I do not understand how they can sacrifice their children, how they can, you know, be willing to have, you know, small businesses crushed, how they can be willing to hear the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, three really distinguished scientists say 230 million are going to die of starvation, and they are the poorest of the poor. It's communities of color who are being disproportionately harmed by lockdown policies. It's all the people we're supposed to be championing. So there is a, I'm just going to say it, and I hope, you know, whatever, I hope I survive, whatever backlash I get, but there is a mass hysteria, at, you know, in which people are, are being encouraged to see submission to COVID policies as the most fundamental thing. And this happens when people are really scared, right? They start to lose the ability to engage in critical thinking. But again, just to say in, in Britain, it's conservatives who are tormenting their own people this way, even worse than we are. You know, in Australia, uh, it's, it's conservatives as well. In Canada, it's, you know, people who are liberal, center liberal. So there's something very evil happening that is really transcending political party right now. And it's about aggregation of, of power. And it's about, um, you know, really, you know, you, I don't know if you've seen these kind of images of the K-shaped economy, but there's a projection that when this is all over, the wealthy will be wealthier. Um, no one, you know, who's lower middle class or middle class will own anything at all. Everyone will be a wage slave. And that's the, the consequence of all of this. And that is not due to the, the pandemic. It's due to policies enacted at, at the expense of all common sense and justice justified by the pandemic. Well, uh, but I just want to say one more dark and cynical thing, unless I've run out of time. Go for May it. I? Go for it. Thank you. Well, you know, I've talked about China and I've talked about, you know, bad, bad leaders. And I've talked about partisanship. But there's one last piece, which is how easy it this pandemic and these policies make it for rich people to um, hedge their investments. What I mean is I just was on hold with Charles Schwab and they were going through their kind of recommendations on a recorded line. Half of the recommendations were related to lockdown policies. You know, vaccines are going to do this. And, you know, Infotech, which is what, you know, has hundreds of millions of dollars in profit when your child is stuck inside on distance learning, that's up. And, you know, if, you know, when we find out how the COVID numbers are going, then we'll bet on other things. So basically, coronavirus policies make it very easy for rich people to um, kind of centrally plan the economy and to, and for investors to to not to, to minimize their risk because if you are Bloomberg and you're the guy presenting the COVID numbers on two portals, right? COVID nineteen tracking, which he bought, and Johns Hopkins, which he funds, you're going to know ahead of everyone else which way those numbers are going. You're going to know how to place your bets on the stock market. So basically. I'm, you know, I've said a lot, but I'm saying that as in any real crisis, a lot of carpetbaggers swoop in and make it work for their own special interests. So it is partisan, but it's not just partisan. 
That's a very good point. My last question for you, Naomi, is what about you? I am fascinated to hear the reaction that you've gotten from your friends on the left. Have you have have there been attempts to cancel you because you dared to speak out as a as a progressive, a prominent progressive against the the conventional wisdom on the left? What's been the reaction to Naomi Wolf? I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm directly getting blowback from the left. I'm definitely getting reputational attacks and smears. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that, but, you know, once again, my, my book, Outrages, Sex, Censorship, and the Criminalization of Love, which I would like to mention, um, it's got a chapter on <laughs> how a wave of infectious diseases in the 19th century led to the state cracking down on all human liberty. It, you know, it, it's a very prescient chapter, um, and that book is, is under attack yet again. So I hope all of your listeners go out and buy it. Um, but I don't see the backlash coming from the left. I see it coming from major news outlets like, you know, like The Guardian, like The New York Times, um, who, again, are, are singled out when I'm identifying how much money they get from Bill Gates to keep this going, keep this going, keep this going for his own, you know, nefarious profit or um, uh, other kinds of blowback. Mostly it's personal, honestly. People I love don't – are. are feel more and more alienated from me. I've had to talk to, you know, people who are colleagues who are wanting to withdraw their support from me because they think that by even presenting peer-reviewed scientific studies that there is no asymptomatic transmission, that, you know, it is extremely unlikely that you'll get someone sick in the fresh air, that wearing masks in the fresh air doesn't do anything, that children are harmed, but they, they think what's happened is kind of a third rail or kind of this magical thinking that if you if you dare to challenge that, you're you're somehow jeopardizing everyone and jeopardizing the good. And that is right out of kind of the Salem witch trial hysteria. So I have had to have a lot of difficult conversations with people I love or with colleagues, but I wouldn't say the left as a whole has gone after me. They're just ignoring it. Dr. Naomi Wolf, thank you so much for your time and for having the courage of your convictions to stand up during these exceedingly difficult circumstances. Thank you so much, John. And, and same to you. We need every independent thinker and we all need to band together and, you know, country and children over party right now in this emergency. So thank you for letting me join you. Keep in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a really interesting interview with uh, Dr. Wolf, and it went pretty much as, as I expected. I'm glad to hear that she doesn't feel as if as she's being canceled, although it sounds pretty darn close to that. Uh, but th- that's the world which the world in which we now live, folks. Th- this is this is scary stuff. Th- this is this is not a drill. This is for real. And how our way of life is going to survive this is a mystery to me. I've been exceedingly pessimistic, as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast about where we are headed. People like Naomi Wolf give me some semblance of hope, but there should be hundreds, if not thousands, of Naomi Wolfs out there. And the fact that there isn't. I think is a damning indictment of humanity in general and the left in particular. Uh, and and this is obviously a particular sore point for me because this entire podcast is about me as a conservative taking a position against Donald Trump. And where are the liberals taking the position against the COVID cult? Because I see the two things as having a lot of similarities. They're not a perfectly analogous situation, but far more similar than they are dissimilar. And as far as the general pandemic, I mean, there's a lot of good news. 
the numbers are dropping dramatically nationwide, especially when it comes to hospitalizations. And it's clear, if you know anything about data and the way these charts look, it's not about any sort of mitigation factors. It's about nature. This thing is following the exact same course as the 1918 flu, almost to the day in some places of the country. So with the help of vaccinations, which I do believe in, especially for the for the elderly and and the way that it appears as if herd immunity is starting to take effect in some areas of the country, not to mention the natural cycle of things. There's a lot of reason for optimism. But now we have to deal with this political quicksand that we're in and the investment that so many people have in not being having been wrong about the damage they created especially when it comes to things like schools and small businesses, which has been epic, catastrophic, and I think we're only just beginning to see the full magnitude of. Now, we will do at least one more episode of the Individual One podcast. That'll be next week. It'll be on Friday, not Wednesday. It'll be on Friday of next week. The impeachment trial will surely be over at that point. We'll wrap it all up. It'll be a don't-miss episode, final finale of the Individual One podcast. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual the Number One Pod. That's at Individual the Number One Pod. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.